into Romans today and try to make some sense of it. We'll be in chapter 1. Let's, let's pray. Lord, as we come together, I'm just excited for this journey that you're going to lead us through. Lord, uh, really do that. Help each one of us as we walk through this book to see a little bit of ourselves, uh, definitely to see what it, what it has to say to us as a, a body, a church. And then, Lord, uh, you use this study to strengthen us. We pray in Jesus' name. Let's say it together. Amen. A couple of just introductory things to, to review. Um, the church in Rome, we believe, was established somewhere around 40 A.D., right? So kind of picture this in terms of, of history. Um, you know, G, when you look at the calendar, it's a little bit weird to, to figure out because when, when, you, when you're looking at, at history, we typically, we grew up with, with A.D., B.C., right? So B.C., before Christ, A.D., Anio Deum, the, the year of our Lord. So we would think, well, Jesus must have been born like in year one of A.D., but it's not true. While historians can't exactly pinpoint Jesus' birthday, quite a few would say probably around 3 A.D. is Jesus' birth, right? So I want to contextualize that. When you're at 40 A.D., you know, you're 37 years removed from the, 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 the birth now the the life, right? Jesus dies at what age? 33, right? Uh, and then the resurrection and ascension. So um, we're not too far away from that time when Jesus has, has ascended and uh, the churches are being established predominantly through what we call the diaspora. The churches we know it started in Jerusalem. And uh, af- after, after Paul began to persecute the church. Uh, the apostles remained in Jerusalem, but the disciples began to disperse outwardly. Rome was one of the chief cities where the disciples entered into with the intention of beginning, beginning house churches to change that city. Always think of it this way. In America today, if somebody walked in my office and said, Luke, you pick out a city that needs to be rescued in the name of Jesus Christ what city would you go to, right? So someone might say, well, well, you go out into the Washington area, uh, Seattle uh, area, and you have one of the most unchurched cultures in America today. Uh, very, very few Christians. In fact, Christianity kind of mocked in, in a lot of respects. So someone might say, hey, Seattle would be a city to go to. I wouldn't disagree with that. Los Angeles. Oh my goodness gracious, um, you, t- you talk about uh, a population dense area where Christianity is all over the place and a mess. Does that city need to be reached? Yes, it does. Okay. Uh, someone might say, how about Washington, D.C.? Probably needs to be reached for, for Jesus Christ, right? So we could pick cities around this country and, um, and yet as Christians, we, we tend to think of it like this. Yeah, I could go to Seattle, but what difference is it going to make? I could go to Los Angeles, but I'm just like a a little spit in the ocean. I'm not going to make a difference. Paul and the early Christians really believed, they really believed, if I come into this city, I'm carrying with me dynamite that changes the world. And I can't change it. There's no way I could change Rome. Rome is the the largest city in in the empire. I can't change this. But I believe that God can. Um, do you believe that? And I'm going to just not have you raise your hands, but I'm going to ask you that. Do you believe that today? You live in a city 
According to Acts 17, God put you here in this time, in this place, for this purpose of reaching this city. Can God change this city? I was born May 15, 1958, on my birthday. Um, a little Korean guy preached his um, first sermon. He preached it to all of two people. Uh, the next week, he was down to one. He said, I lost half my congregation in my first sermon. He says, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. If I, I can't really go backwards, I'm going to be in, in trouble. He became deathly ill, deathly ill, after his first year in ministry. Uh, his little church had begun to grow a little bit, and he got sick. And uh, so he went to the men of the church and said, I'm, I'm, I'm literally on my deathbed. I'm on a bed. I can't get up. I can't preach. Would you men take over and let's start doing what they did in the earliest days of Christianity. Let's, let's have church in our homes. And each of you will, I'll work on a lesson and each of you will lead that lesson. The men said, oh, you're the pastor and you do that. We don't do that. The pastor wisely went to the women of the church and said, the men have refused to do this. Would you take these lessons and preach? And the women said, yes. And all of a sudden, the men said, mm, we've reconsidered. We think we'll go ahead and, and do that. What started off as, as a problem ended up being a blessing. Today, uh, in South Korea, uh, you will find from the very beginnings of that church, a church of 700,000 people. It's the largest Christian church in the world. Sunday mornings are comprised of worship from like 6 a.m. all through the night, and they can only worship 25,000 at a time. And so you schedule your worship time as you come into it. They don't have youth groups. They don't have senior citizen groups. They don't have... Um, anything other than worship and home groups. And yet out of that has arisen a city. Seoul, Korea is a huge city that's being impacted by a group of people who started off with this simple idea that we carry around a word that has the potential to change the world. And I like to think about that. In 40 AD, a group of people dispersed out of Jerusalem have entered into the city. People would laugh at them. Do you really think you can make a dent in this city? And they said, yes, we do. Paul hears about what's going on in the Roman church through Priscilla and Aquila, this is Acts 18, where he learns that the emperor, Claudius, has forced the Christians out of Rome. And um, so a second dispersion has, has taken place. And Aquila and Priscilla, um, tent makers, kind of like Paul, begin to share those stories about what, what has been going on in the, in the church in Rome. Paul becomes convinced of something. I need to go there. I need to go to Rome. Because as much as Claudius has tried to force Christianity out of the city, he cannot. You cannot extinguish Christianity. And so before he goes, Paul has to go to Jerusalem. And so he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take out a pen and I'm going to write this letter to the church. I want, I want the people who are in these home churches to listen to what God has to say to them. And there are two themes that become prominent in this letter 
And I want you to kind of hold on to these themes because they're the thread that takes us through the whole of the letter. The first theme is warfare. What Paul is aware of is there's a war going on. The devil, through people, including Claudius, political ruler, but many others will try to crush the church. Interesting correlation here. Just kind of thinking about this uh, this past week. You know, at Christmas time, we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. But when Jesus Christ came into the world at his birth, there was an enemy waiting for him. We say his name was Herod, right? What was he? A pawn in Satan's hand, seeking to kill Jesus Christ when he was born, right? Interesting correlation. When churches are born, just a, just a kind of an interesting fact. Um, it doesn't take long before our enemy says, crush it, kill it. If you ever study the early history of churches, you'll discover that early on when a church is born, there are efforts made by the enemy to crush it. Um, first church I served in Wisconsin, I discovered that. I walked in on the building. It said, First Emmanuel Lutheran Church. I raised my hand with the question, why is this First Emmanuel Lutheran Church? The little town we were in, Cedarburg, kind of a bedroom community in Milwaukee, wasn't that big. And so I'm like, is there like a second um, Emmanuel Lutheran Church? Well, pastor, it's a long story. I said, tell it to me. They got out the picture books. I love looking at old pictures. The pastor of the church, he looked kind of like ZZ Top guy. He had the long beard, but a ZZ Top that didn't smile. Whenever you look back in that tree, you look back at those old pictures, they didn't smile for, for pictures. So there he is. I'm like, yep, he looks like a Lutheran pastor. And uh, I said, well, what happened to him? Well, he came to church one day after a wedding. And he stood up in the pulpit and he said, you and you and you and you were dancing last night. And I saw you dancing after the wedding. I want you to come up forward and I want you to stand here and I want you to admit to the congregation your sin before God. And then ask the congregation if they'll forgive you. And if, if they will, then, then you, you may remain seated. They said, we won't. The next Sunday, they locked the pastor out of the congregation. He came to preach, and the door had been, the locks had been changed. He couldn't get in. He was pretty upset. So he called the synod. The synod said, oh, no, nope, they can't do that. Yeah, that, that's not proper. And so what happened is this group of people said, well, then we're going to go create our own church. They left the church, and they started Emmanuel Lutheran Church, which is actually second Emmanuel Lutheran Church in this little town. And I'm like, holy smokes. Early on. In a church's history, just like Herod, I'm going to kill the child early on in a church's history. Do you know this church's history? Early on, early on, Satan tried to extinguish this place. And I, I want you to just kind of see that, that, that Paul's very much aware of this, that um, a church is being born. We have an enemy who wants to make sure that it is extinguished before it can even get started We've got a great start into this. Claudius is forcing Christians out, right? I want to deal with them. The Jewish church is making sure that the, that the Roman politics know where the church is so that they can shove it out. And Paul says, then I'm writing a letter and I'm going to talk to the church about warfare. Warfare. Question for you today. 
Are we in it? We are. We are in it. This is interesting to me. Um, they were interviewing a guy by the name of Jeff, Jeff Bezos. Uh, and I don't think I'm saying his last name correctly. But he's the, um, the guy who runs this little shop called Amazon, if you've ever, if you've ever heard of that. And they talked to him about the culture that he's developing. He said, I, I want to develop a culture that is a day one culture. And he says, I want to preach to my, to my people that we never get to day two. So well, what's, what does that mean? He says, day one culture is a culture that remains aware that we are in a battle. And it never loses sight of that. And it, it works to iterate and change and adjust and, and be, stay relevant within the culture that it's a part of. Day two is when the company becomes happy with where they are. That's where they say to themselves, I think we made it. It's when they say to themselves, our processes work pretty well. And he says, day two cultures are deadly. When I think about warfare in, in this church, I always say to myself, well, this church really made it through some hard times. And they were actually good for this congregation. There were some battles that had to be fought both internally as well as, as externally. They, they, they required this congregation to say, we have to be on our knees and praying to God, God, would you see us through this battle? I think that our warfare here is probably more day two warfare. It's the temptation that churches face to shift into that gear of everything's good, everything's fine, we've made it. Romans really addresses all of that. It's, a, it's an effort to say the minute you stop knowing in the gut that this is war, that people's souls are at stake, and the minute you stop striving to take the dynamite of the gospel into the lives of people, and you shift gears into that day two we're fine mentality, is the day you're in huge trouble because the enemy says good. So I, I really think that we'll, we'll get a lot out of Romans because it, it does remind me, it should remind us, we are, we are at war in a city and that war is really over people's lives and people's souls. So many don't have a, a clue who Jesus Christ is and what, what should we do, how should we respond uh, to that. Hand in hand with that is this idea of mission, right? Uh, Romans is a highly missional book. It's meant to say, church in Rome, under warfare, stay on mission. Stay doing what you were called to do. Uh, today's a busy day. It's a really busy day for me. This whole weekend's been a busy weekend. Um, you know, from staff parties to finishing getting everything ready for Christmas here uh, to we've got our small group tonight. But I will tell you this, this afternoon, even though part of me is like, man, am I tired. I'll be at two parks. I'm going to be at two parks. And I'll tell you why. Because the last time I was at one of these parks, one of the little kids, he didn't know who Jesus was at all. 
And so LA has worked hard to make sure we're going to be at these parks. And what we're going to be doing is taking kids on a walk through the nativity. And I can guarantee you there will be some little kids who are like, who, what is this about? How, Christmas is about Jesus? Yes, it's about Jesus. It's not about Amazon. It's not about toys. It's about Jesus. They're going to meet the innkeeper and the shepherd and the angels. And we're going to meet them all. But my point being, don't ever take your eyes off of mission. There is a war going on. Stay on task. Stay on mission because souls are at stake. That's the book of Romans. We're going to jump into this and, and we'll take it just a little bit this morning. Um, let's kind of open your Bibles up and, and dive in. This is thick stuff, so I'll stop a few times along the way. Notice how Paul starts this letter. Just how do you jump out of the gate if I'm going to talk about warfare and mission? He starts off with these words, Paul, uh, doulos Jesu Christu, most of our translations will say something like a servant of Jesus Christ, kaleo, called to be an apostle, set apart for the euangelion theu, the gospel of God, which is promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God and power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among other nations including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. <gasps> Greek instructor. Luke? The easiest Greek in the Bible are some of the Gospels. Mark writes in very short and succinct sentences. Luke, the toughest Greek in the Bible. It's going to be Paul's epistles, particularly Romans. Why? Because the man cannot find a period. <laughs> and so he opens up this letter with just a whoosh, you know, shovel full of words that I think all mean something pretty significant. I won't overdo them, but I do want to have you think through what he's saying. He's identifying himself, which you do in a letter. Who, who are you? I'm Paul, and I am a doulos of Christ Jesus. So the word servant in your, in your English Bible actually has underneath it the Greek word doulos, which, which literally is translated slave. Here's the difference between the two. If I'm your servant, if I'm your servant, I still am independent of you. I own, I own myself, and I have my own well-being, right? So I go to a restaurant. I'm here to serve you. Well, I, that servant doesn't belong to me. They're their own independent person, right? I'm here to clean your house. I'm, I'm here to serve you, right? I'm here to mow your lawn. I'm, I'm your servant, but you don't own me. A doulos is different. Doulos means I own nothing. I don't own myself. I'm owned by someone, okay? So Paul very intentionally is starting off this letter saying, I want you to know who I am. I'm someone who doesn't even own my own life. I don't know my breath. I don't know anything. I, I'm owned by him. I belong to him. What has he done? Well, he has called me to be an apostle. Um, you know, when you, when you talk about this, this is kind of interesting. Paul's calling, when does it happen? 
Well, it happens very early on in life. Uh, he describes that calling all the way over in Galatians chapter 1. And it's worth just taking a, a quick peek at that. Um, if you flip over to Galatians 1 and, and look um, at verse 11 and following, um, because it reminds me a little bit of who we are. Now, I'm not, I'm not called out to be an apostle, me per personally. Um, you may not be called out to be an apostle personally. Paul was. Uh, and when did he receive that, that calling? Well, take a look at verse 11. He says, For I'd have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. Again, I don't own it. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through the revelation of Jesus Christ. So kind of interesting. Paul, unlike the other disciples, how did he receive the gospel? Directly through Jesus Christ. Verse 13, You've heard of my former life. How I persecuted the church of God violently, and I tried to destroy it. Does Paul know warfare? Yeah, he does. He was part of it. Verse 14, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he, now I want you to just notice these words, but when he who had set me apart before I was born... Think about that. And who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Just kind of think about that for a minute as we come back over to Romans. You were set apart. You're not an apostle. Well, I can't say that of all of you because some of you may be apostles. You may have that gift. But when God's, God made you, he made you for a kingdom purpose. Um, when you became his own, uh, through, the, through the word, whether it's acting in baptism or outside of baptism, when you became his own, when faith was born inside of you, the spirit of God comes to reside in you, but there's also a gifting placed upon you. The spirit chooses that gift. He says to you, Neil, I'm going to give the gift of, of, of apostleship. To you, I'm, Mark, I'm going I'm to give you this, this gift of teaching. I'm going to give you this gift of, of hospitality. It gives us different gifts. They're all kingdom gifts. And so when did he decide who you would be? Before you were born. Before you came into this world. What I've discovered, unfortunately, is sometimes it takes people, it can take people most of their lifetime before they actually discover, oh, Man, no wonder I've been so frustrated with life. No wonder I've been so messed up in life. I've been doing everything except that for which I was called and set apart. Paul was. He was killing Christians. He wasn't doing what he was called to be. Until God said, in my grace, I'm going to reveal to you who you are to be in me. And so that's a question that I'm constantly coming back before God with because I do believe that, that God's gifting can, can change over our, the course of our life. And so I'm always coming back to that. God, you set me apart for your kingdom. That's a given. How do you want me to serve in it? What are the gifts that you've given to me? How do I use those gifts? Um, I, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm going to be sharp, I'm always trying to push toward that. Luke, what, what are you, your, 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 your chapters aren't that many. You don't have many left. What are you here for? Why did he set you apart? 
kind of think about that because Romans reminds us that you have a kingdom purpose, a kingdom purpose, not a little puny worldly purpose, a kingdom purpose. He's gifted you. Are you using those gifts? Can you name them? Can you say, yep, I'm, I'm an apostle or um, Ephesians 4, you know, identifies the evangelist or uh, the teacher. What, how did he gift you? Well, come back to that time and time again. And that's how Paul's introducing himself. He says, I'm not here to just take, brag about myself. I'm here because before I was even born, God set me apart. I didn't even know it. He revealed it to me. And when he revealed it, he said, Paul, I have made you an apostle. What's an apostle? What is that? So technically, in biblical terms, we would say an apostle is one who, who basically knows firsthand, firsthand the work that Jesus Christ did during his lifetime. Those are the apostles. Um, so we would say that the 12 apostles, and um, now one dies at his own hand, Judas, and another apostle, and then the latest apostle, Paul, right? And so you'd say, well, Paul didn't really follow Jesus around. He didn't have that firsthand evidence, as did the other apostles. No, he did not. But what Paul is saying is, all of that was revealed to me by Jesus himself. And so I'm being set aside now to stand as one who gives testimony to the life and work of Jesus Christ and what it means for your life. That's what an apostle does. An apostle uh, is set aside for, for the work of, of helping people come to know who, who is Jesus Christ and what does his word mean specifically for you. The gift of apostleship is alive today. Uh, we don't use that terminology in the Lutheran church unless we want to get in pretty big trouble, which I sometimes like to do. Um, I really wouldn't mind doing it, to be honest with you. I kind of like the word. Um, I don't, um, why don't we say you're an apostle, you're an evangelist? You're, that's what the Bible says, right? So if you have the gift of apostleship, typically your, your bent in life is towards planting churches. It's towards making sure the gospel is going out here and here and here and here and here. You are probably knocking on my office door saying, I noticed that they're building a hospital over here. Um, not just a hospital, there's, there's going to be like a hotel by it. And, and some new housing out there. I wonder if we should be planting a church. You're knocking that on my door asking me that question. If you're an apostle, you're knocking on my door and you're saying, um, see, I've been doing a little reading and I, I've noticed that this, this whole church planting thing, there's something going on in the rural church because a lot of rural churches, guess what they're doing right now? Dying. They're losing their pastors. Last pastor's conference I went into, here, it was at our church. I walked into the door. I went, I'm like, excuse me. Is this a Geritol-like convention going on here? Can can I get a cane? I mean, I I, I thought to myself, my goodness gracious, what's going on here? Have we noticed this? And not a lot lot of young people are kind of matriculating into the, the ministry. Our rural churches are saying, we can't even get a pastor. Maybe that's a good thing. They can't get a pastor. Maybe, maybe it is. 
But somebody might be saying to me, what, what would happen if, if this church actually kind of became a, a hub and we've got these other churches over here, what if we help serve them? That's how an apostle would think. Apostles never settle. They don't say to themselves, yep, we're good, we're here. They say to themselves, yeah, but we're not reaching them or them or them. And that, they have a need right there. That's how apostles think. So that's Paul. Paul, you can't sit Paul down and tell him to stay sitting. Paul's like, what, sit where? Okay, I was sitting there for a few minutes and then I noticed over there and over there and over there. So that's how Paul's introducing himself. He's saying, I'm one who has evidence of Jesus' life. I want to see what he is birthed amongst you and I'm going to speak to you here in Rome. I'm set apart, he says, as an apostle for the gospel of God. When you hear the word gospel, what do you think of? Good news. Please rise for the reading of the gospel. Right? We think we be, if I hear the word gospel, I better jump up. What does the word actually mean? It's an interesting word. Here it is in kind of an English version of the Greek, euangelion. If you look carefully, you'll see an angel in it. Can you see the angel in it? It's kind of hidden in there, right there is angel. Angel means messenger. You means good angel, good announcement, good news. Here's what it is. It's a war word. It's a war word. It's a word that goes back to this right here. So in ancient Rome, you fight a battle, right? War goes on. I send my kids out to battle. Do I get phone calls from my kids telling me how it's going in the battle? No phones. Do I get, do I get texts from my kids telling me I'm okay? No texts. How about emails? No emails. Do I go on TV and see what's going on out there on the battlefield? No TVs. How did you hear what's going on out on the battlefield? How, could you, how would you know? You wouldn't know. And so you would send your sons out to fight and you would sit at home and you would pray, Dear God, please be with my son. The way that you would hear how things are going on the battlefield is through the euangelist, the evangelist. Technically, an evangelist in the Roman world is somebody who rides a horse from the battlefield back to the home field to announce good news. The good news is your son's alive. We're winning the war. The war is going well. They should be home soon. That's what an evangelist did. So in, in Rome, if you hear the word euangelios, it's a wartime word, and it becomes part of the church's language. And here's a Paul saying, here, I'll tell you who I am. Before I was born, God set me apart for this job of apostleship. He set me aside to bring you some news that there's a war going on. There's a war going on. Here's the good news. Jesus is winning that war. He can win that war in you. He can win it in you. Um, this kind of hit me hard this week. I was think I really I was thinking about this this section of Romans. I thought, you know, how many people do I know? And I look at them, and they have no idea at all that there's an enemy that wants their soul for eternity. And yet, 
I'm living in a culture that says I really shouldn't address that. It's not my business. I'm not supposed to spew religion out of people. I'm not supposed to talk to people. But I'm looking at this person and they don't even know that there's an enemy that's eating them alive. How can I be quiet? How? How can I sit there and have conversations about how it's been really nice outside lately? Oh, but it's going to get cold. How can I do that? And then walk away and think, oh, that was good. It wasn't good. And so what I, I mean, one of the things that's always inside of me is, don't you realize we're at war? Why, why would you do that? Why not start some conversation with somebody who causes them to actually realize that there's a battle going on inside of them? Because once you start helping them realize that, they go, oh my gosh, I didn't even, I, I had no idea. Right? This is Paul. There's that intense missional focus. God set me apart because there's a war going on. I'm the guy on the horse that comes in to tell you something. I've got some good news here. Jesus Christ has won the war, but it's with your enemy. And, and he wants to win it in your life too. He wants to win it in you. And churches in Rome, that's our mission. That's what God has called us to be and to do. And this gospel isn't something new. It's something that was set aside and promised by the prophets themselves in the scriptures about Jesus Christ descended from David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God in power. See what Paul's doing? He's just focusing in right away at the very beginning on these two themes. Warfare, mission. Church, warfare, mission. What are we supposed to be about? Bringing the gospel to Jesus Christ in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection. We're going to stop there. And um, I, I get mixed up. I really honestly do get mixed up. I think, Rachel, do you remember what, what is our December schedule? Um, they, like, we don't have Sunday school some days. Which days are they? Okay. So I, I'm planning... I'm, do we, do we know, Pat? Do you know? Do we have class next week? Okay, we're on next week. Let's pray. Lord, as we uh, close out this morning, just ask that you be with us. There's a war, and, uh, and honestly, it's going on in our own families. Some of our kids' lives, grandkids' lives, our brothers' lives, our sisters' lives, our parents' lives. It's a war, and it means eternity. And you've given us this gospel. You've set us apart. You've gifted us, Lord, to be a body that believes your word has the power to change lives. Lord God, continuously keep us focused on that mission. Never let it be day two. Never let it be day two. Help us maintain that sense of, of, of urgency, Lord, even in this city. Be with us, and I'll just ask your special blessing over this afternoon in, in two parks, uh, Lord, as the gospel is proclaimed. In Jesus' name, amen.